You Can Mentor is a podcast about the power of building relationships with kids from hard places in the name of Jesus. Every episode will help you overcome common mentoring obstacles and give you the confidence you need to invest in the lives of others. You Can Mentor. Youth mentoring is among the most popular forms of volunteering in the world, but does it actually work? Today's episode is an interview with Dr. Jean E. Rhodes, the director of the Center for Evidence-Based Mentoring at the University of Massachusetts, Boston. Dr. Rhodes has dedicated her career to researching the efficacy of youth mentoring and wrote a book titled Older and Wiser, drawing on more than 30 years of empirical research to answer that question. We hope today's episode gives you or your organization value, and if so, we'd love to hear about it. Leave us a review, rate the podcast, and share this episode with someone you think would benefit from the content. Thanks for listening. Welcome back to the You Can Mentor podcast. My name is Steven, and I'm here with my co-host, Zachary Garza. Hi, guys. And our very special guest today is Dr. Rhodes. Dr. Rhodes, how are you doing today? Very good, thank you. So Jean Rhodes, she's essentially... I don't know how to put this, but I think you are the the Jordan Peterson of youth mentoring research. I, I feel like I can be as bold to say that. So really excited to have you on. She is the Frank L. Boyden Professor of Psychology and the Director of the Center for Evidence-Based Mentoring at the University of Massachusetts, Boston. She's devoted her career to understanding youth mentoring and looking at the efficacy of youth mentoring. And so we're having her on here as an audit to make sure our podcast is all right, but also to make sure that we're doing a good job as youth mentoring leaders. So if you're a youth mentoring leader, you need to buckle up for today's interview. Jean, I wanted to have you on to talk about recommendations for people like you who are creating best practices for youth mentoring and coming to a place where practitioners are wanting to seek you out and ask you, Gene, what should I do when it comes to mentoring youth and how how can we do this better? And so after reading your book, which you just came out with, Older and Wiser, the subtitle is New Ideas for Youth Mentoring in the 21st Century. I finished reading it. I underlined half of it. So <laughs> I just, I loved your, your research. And the, the primary takeaway was that everybody loves mentoring, but is it actually doing what we think it's doing? Is it effectual? And so your research is all about the efficacy of youth mentoring and you bring into question, how, how are we tracking? How are we measuring? How are we looking at statistics to view what mentoring programs are doing currently and how can we make it better? And so I'd love for you to share just, even just what you kind of talk about in the book is like the history of youth mentoring, how it came to be and how it, how it became one of the most, I guess, sought after ways to volunteer is becoming a youth mentor. Sure, I'd be happy. So I'm, I'm going to start by giving you a little history, as you asked, and then answering the first part of your question is sort of how can we make it more effective? So the history of mentoring in, in the U.S. Is, is actually pretty interesting. It started with a young uh, whiskey salesman who looked out his window and saw a kid in Cleveland d- digging through his garbage, and he went outside and befriended him and took him out to lunch and began to kind of really help him and his family. And he really liked that idea, and he got other people, and he, he was a uh, a member of the JCC, the Jewish Community Center. He got other members of the JCC to help him. And um, he said he was just like Johnny Appleseed, spreading the word of, of mentoring around. And that was Big Brothers. 
And at the same time, in New York City, there was a Christian element in the court systems, in the, the communities in New York City that kind of was doing the same thing. So this happened right around the progressive era in the U.S., which was around the turn of the century when there was great wealth gaps, just like we have today. And mentoring was seen as a way not only to help children, but their families. Now, it kind of continued slowly. It was mostly Big Brothers, Big Sisters of America for, for, for decades. And then there was a second mentoring movement, and that started around the 1980s. And it started with a number of things that were happening all at once. One is that inequality was beginning to get worse again under the kind of policies of, of Reaganism after you know, a period of time where there was a robust middle class, we began to see wealth concentration again. So there was that same desire to help kids. We saw an evaluation of Big Brothers, Big Sisters that was conducted that showed some promising effects. Now, they were exaggerated, but they it was enough to make people really galvanize around the idea of youth mentoring. But this time, it was different. This time, it was really focused squarely on the child and not on the whole, you know, getting family housing and jobs and all of that. It was really this almost a notion, let's pull that child out of poverty and provide almost like secondary parenting to this kid because maybe their community was failing them. So it had a different feel to it the second time around. And it began to be a little bit more perfunctory. It began to be just, I'll meet with you for an hour a week and then I'll go my way and you go your way. And there was never a real focus. It was just, let's have a relationship. And just by hanging out together, you're going to have, and building a relationship, so many positive things will happen, you won't believe it. But it was a fantasy, really, to think that all of the entrenched problems of mental health, of education, of, you know, a lot of the things associated with poverty, it was a fantasy to think that that could all be washed away with a one-hour-a-week meeting. And the results of the evaluations began to show that. You know, if you look at what's called the effect size, which is like the magnitude of impact, you see that really since we began to evaluate mentoring programs back 20 years ago to most recently, we haven't improved the practice of youth mentoring. And for many of the programs that are most, you know, recognizable, the big programs, the effect size is close to zero. Now, if that was a clinical trial for a, a new uh, vaccine or anything else, <laughs> we would say, all right, let's, let's go back to the drawing board. But for some reason, we keep we, we keep doing it over and over again. In fact, one of the um, endorsements on my book was from the Obama Foundation and uh, the director of My Brother's Keeper. And he said, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. Mm. And that's kind of, we've been kind of insane. And so a little, so, you know, after I trace the research and I show that it's pretty disappointing for most models, I have a chapter that I, I really go into sort of how did we get it so wrong for so long? And, I, and that's where I delve into some of the, cognitive biases that are triggered simply by using the word mentoring. If we had the clunkier, but perhaps more accurate term, which would be like paraprofessional youth specialist or something, uh, it would we would have higher expectations and we wouldn't allow such sort of promiscuous, do, what, do whatever and good things will happen. And we would pay more attention to the results. And so I think part of it has to do with the word mentor. So that's another argument that I make in the book. That's awesome. Well, and I, I think that even just from what I remember in, in your book is that there's this, there's this insistence upon having a nonspecific model that, that, that people convince themselves, well, we're addressing yeah. all of the issues. And, and what you say in your book is like, well, when you try to address all the issues, what you're really saying is you're not yeah, addressing yeah, any of no, them. No, exactly. I was actually going to call the book, The Mentoring Paradox for a while, because 
to me, the paradox was that the harder we pushed just to form a friendship, the more we were kind of weakening the whole enterprise because the friendship alone was never going to be enough. It had to be the friendship plus something. And there were people that felt like, well, if you add the plus something, like, you know, focusing on grades or, you know, relaxation skills or whatever it is the young person needs that you would take away from the relationship, but actually you'll strengthen the relationship because you'll have a shared goal and you will be making progress. And so absolutely. The, another term for the non-specific approach is what I call the friendship model. You know, it's like this whole idea that the friendship alone is enough. It's not, it, you know, you don't go to a teacher and say, let's just form a relationship and, and somehow I'll learn math. Uh, you don't go to a doctor. Yes, it's important to have good bedside manners, but the doctor also has to have some sort of intervention on top of that. And somehow in mentoring, we just got stuck with the bedside manners <laughs> or with a hodgepodge of like, oh, this week you're sad. Well, let's talk about it. And this week you're struggling in math. Let's look at that. And, and when you do things like in this low dose way, you're not going to get anywhere. But I also want to kind of step back and have a little forgiveness for programs that, that took this approach. First of all, researchers were saying that it worked, including me. If I wrote a book in 2002 called Stand By Me, where I really argued the opposite of what I argued in this book. And so in some ways, we researchers led programs astray. But more importantly, it's really hard to provide targeted care when you have a big program. So say you're like a big brother's big sister of America. Well, and there's five kids at the door. Well, one kid might be depressed. One kid is acting out. One kid is flunking school. The other one can't get along with their peers. That's four different interventions you would need. And what is the likelihood that that program is going to have the resources and the training capacity to deliver with any kind of fidelity four completely different interventions? And so, you know, I, I think that it, it makes sense that they defaulted to the lowest common denominator, which is a relationship. Um, but I think we have new technologies now that will enable us to take that relationship and leverage it. And that's one of the other things I talk about in the book. Yeah, Gene. So one of our favorite sayings is relationships change lives, right? We tend to focus in on the relationship and not so much teaching these kids certain skills. But what we found out with your book is it's, yes, relationships change lives because they give you the the right to speak into a kid's life. But unless you use that right to teach them a skill that is going to help them become a positive and productive adult, then it is all for naught. Yeah, I mean, that's a really good way of putting it, Zachary. I mean, it's just like the relationship alone is typically not enough. Now, for some kids, it is in and of itself so revolutionary to have an adult that you can trust that it enables you to heal in a way that the, 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 the very process of forming trust is the intervention, right? So I don't want to minimize that. I also want to say that it, having the relationship is absolutely viable, valuable. And we all know this. I'm a clinical psychologist. You can't get a kid motivated to change or to try something new if they don't like you. And if you don't have, you know, a, what's called a working alliance and, you know, where you the kid senses that you get them, that you like them. So those things are, remain absolutely vital. But I would say for some kids who already have trust and already have the ability to forge ties, that just forging a tie is not enough. And in fact, there's some new research that suggests that there's sort of a, a ceiling. Like after a certain point, just making the relationship stronger and stronger and stronger isn't really doing much. You just have to have a good enough relationship to be able to leverage it for other things. I, I want to read a quote from the book. You said, the structured goals and tools, which would be the targeted evidence-based interventions, you say the structured goals and tools, whatever their specific value, 
may actually contribute to the relationship rituals that inspire hope and fuel self-efficacy. And you mention in the book that one of the one of the main reasons volunteers fall off and the attrition rate of mentors is so low is because they don't know what to do. And their role is so ambiguous that we tell them to build a friendship, but we don't give them activities and uh, and things that would give them value and help them build relationships. So I thought that was funny that really the organizations that are focusing on solely relationship building, what they need are these practices and tools yeah. in order to build those relationships. That's right. And, you know, in some ways, if we give them the message that there's no particular goal, then, you know, the really ambitious ones are going to be like, well, then I have to fix everything. And it becomes, it becomes overwhelming to like, because often the lives of the young people who are referred to mentoring programs, there's a lot of trauma. There's a lot of mental health issues. There's a lot of difficulty, and particularly during the pandemic and, you know, parents losing jobs and all of this and not being able to be with your friends, the mentor might feel like, oh my God, I can't do all of this. And so what can I do? And, and now let's, let's look at where I can make the biggest impact right now. Yeah. Can you define for our listeners what a targeted evidence-based intervention is? Because when I hear that, it's kind of like what you said about paraprofessional health provider. And I'm like, you lost me. I'm not a doctor. You are a doctor, Gene. <laughs> but can you break that down? Because yeah, so, every every intervention isn't very complicated, at, at least from what I've seen. Right. So let's talk, let's just break it down by the word. So targeted means that um, we know from clinical research that the best outcomes come when you focus on one thing at a time. You know, you're not going to solve everything at once. So you've got a young person who's struggling across a lot of different things. You can't just say, all right, let's fix it all at once. So you get the young person to kind of prioritize and you target one thing at a time because, you know, sometimes multiple things, but you know, if, if the problem is that they are not doing well in school, but you really dig and it's because they're not sleeping, then that's the first thing you start. You start by saying, you know what, you can't learn on an empty tank. Let's get you sleeping and eating. Let's get a schedule. And, and then from there we'll, t we'll tackle the mood problems, but they may go away when we get to the, you know, so it's like really kind of beginning to target what exactly is holding this young person back from reaching their potential. And let's target that. Evidence-based means that at some point, the intervention has been evaluated and has shown to be effective. And so often programs just kind of home grow and come up with interventions. And we don't know whether they work or not. And yet there's this whole world of people building effective interventions that aren't being used. And so how do we put those two things together? How do we put together these beautiful interventions for each thing with the, you know, and getting people using them and not just trying to, you know, do it themselves, DYI intervention. So it's targeted evidence-based approach. Hey, Gene, do um, you think you could just give us just a really simple example of that for some of our listeners? Sure. Okay. Well, let's say we have a young person who's not making friends. They're getting bullied at school. There is a program. It's, it was created by my friend, Tim Cavell. He's a professor at University of Arkansas. And he has the mentor go into the cafeteria. This was back when we had school. <laughs> and sit with the young person and really look at what's going on in that friendship world that the kid is being rejected and bullied. And tr it, it trains college students to really go, and they're called lunch buddies, to go in and sit with the kid and really help them figure out how to, how to make friends. That is really targeted and it's really effective. There's other ones for kids who are making the transition from 
elementary school to middle school, middle school to high school, that those transitions are hard. It teaches them how to make that transition. You name it, there's an intervention for it. Now, I loved even just seeing some of the resources you mentioned in your book. There was a, I, I don't remember the researcher, but he came up with 52 behavioral kernels. And I looked them up and I was like, these are, these are so intuitive and yet these have been practiced and shown to work. And so we would be remiss to not implement them. And it was, yeah, it was as simple so as like omega-3 fatty acids, like to help with the physiology and like the learning capacity of a child. Just give them something like an egg. Like that's a great intervention. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's Anthony Biglin. And the idea is that you can not, you know, because so many of our the issues that we have are, are caused by multiple things that you can kind of, mix and match the intervention to fit the specific need of the child by putting together the smaller pieces of an intervention. Yeah. And so one, one of the things it's like really the, the desire is to get organizations to identify a particular youth and then to also identify particular outcomes that they want to have. And without those two things, really the, the research and that portion is going to be really difficult for you to determine what works and what doesn't. And so the non-specific model is making your job harder as well as. Yeah, and it's another another name for that is like the spaghetti model. Let's just throw a whole handful of spaghetti and see what sticks and, and, and we'll report that to our funder. And it's just so much less efficient than really going right for the thing that you are you care about as an organization. And I'd, I'd love to leave a little time to talk about things that I've done since the book that are, are trying to kind of test this in reality. So, because we actually, it solves a problem. So, so here's the problem that I was stuck with as I was writing this. And that is that yes, evidence-based targeted interventions are most effective like that lunch buddy program or like a cognitive behavioral treatment program for a kid with anxiety. But what are the chances that, that one of those really good programs is gonna have an opening and be available for any kid that walks in the door of Big Brothers, Big Sisters? or any program, that, that those boutique programs that are most effective are usually incubated at universities and are very small scale. And so it makes it really hard to scale evidence when, when things are so boutique -y. And so what I came to, and I'm, I'm sure you remember this, is blended mentoring, this idea that there is this tremendous, really explosion of evidence-based tools on your smartphone. Now, you may not think about, you may, do you guys have, iPhones? Absolutely. Okay. At some point, you may have downloaded an app that promised, to, promised some form of self-improvement, right? Mm -hmm. Maybe it was to exercise or to meditate or to... I do buy, I I do buy annual workouts, Dr. Rhodes. So. <laughs> okay. So maybe it was to increase <laughs> the number of workouts. Um, and on its own, the fact that you downloaded that is not particularly consequential, but the fact that everybody does that means that what we're doing is we're taking evidence from my lab, from other labs, from you know Professor Cavell's lab, and putting it into interventions that are now on our smart smartphones. For example, Headspace is a meditation app that shows huge effects for anxiety and depression. That's on your phone. There's It's called mental health apps, but there's also like Khan Academy, there's education apps, there's Duolingo, there's language apps. And those represent targeted evidence-based interventions. The problem is nobody's using them. 
after two weeks, most of us stop using whatever we downloaded, myself included. Yes, adults do that. So how much more yeah. would children not make it through yet, using it the whole time? And yet there's great child mental health apps out there for everything, for, from fears and sleep and focus and social emotional learning, everything. So there's a scientist at Northwestern, his name is David Moore. He came up with this idea that all of these really good technology delivered interventions that will enable us to provide targeted care are going to work if they're, if, if they're connected with a coach or a mentor. Because if you connect it with a coach who is you're accountable to, we're much more likely to stick with something. And we know, we've known that forever. We knew that with like Alcoholics Anonymous, that you had a sponsor or Weight Watchers or whatever it is, you would never just go into it alone and say, oh, I'll do it all, don't worry. And so if we can pair the incredible potential of mentoring and all these programs with targeted evidence-based interventions that are delivered through technology, we might be able to improve mentoring in a big way. And so in recent, well, in the past year, I've developed a supportive accountability tool for free for mentors. It's called Mentor Hub. And it, what I've done is I've partnered with all the best child-focused uh, interventions, and I've created a platform for mentors to check on the progress and encourage young people to use them. So if anybody's interested, it's called Mentor. Go to mentorhubapp.com org and you'll see it mentor hub we'll leave that in the show notes mentors get on the app be a i, I love what you said just that that really coming back to the relationship side of really needing guidance direction support we're sitting right now in our literacy lab for boys if there's not a coach in here it's not going to happen <laughs> it's not going to happen and they're they're going to do something on their computer that uh, even shows that they're horrible at reading and they may be really proficient at reading and not help them excel. And so really the the need for someone to assist and hold them accountable and and uh, you you said recognize failure points in the system that that yeah. kids have I think is a huge a huge part because one of the main things we run into in our mentoring program is kids give up and they need someone. I mean, we give up. I mean, that's why we do CrossFit and Camp Gladiator. Like, we have to go work out with other people. We can't work out by ourselves. Like, trust me, I know. But I I just I I love the emphasis of how do we scale this? We scale it by getting getting resources into the hands of people who aren't professionals, who aren't clinical psychologists like Gene Rhodes, but can hold a kid accountable and help them through a process. That's right. Which that was something in your book you talked about was like giving it away, that the psychological needs of children in America are far beyond our capacity for professionals to deliver them. And so if you can do research that enables regular everyday mentors to deliver stuff, that's that's how we're going to reach the the most kids. Oh, I'm so glad that that uh, Stephen that you really got that because uh, that's really the essence of it. That we're never going to bridge the gap by relying on professionals, and that mentors they don't have to deliver these interventions with you know rigor because the interventions deliver them themselves. The technology, what they have to do is support it. So it takes them out of the delivery role and puts them in the support role, which is a much better place for your average volunteer. So let me make sure that I'm hearing this right. Okay. So we're part of a mentoring organization and it's our job to find caring adults out there who want to build relationships with kids who need relationships. Once they're in the front door, then it's up to us to introduce them with the solutions to the issues that our kids have. And then they can take those solutions 
and they can introduce them to the kid and support the kid while they take part in those interventions. Exactly. And so things like showing up, things like encouraging, things like not quitting on the kid and, and introducing them to things that they need that can help move the ball forward in their life in a multitude of different areas. That's the job of a mentor. That's right. That's exactly it. You got it. Man, Gene, my head is exploding right now. I just want to tell every person who is on this podcast, who is listening to this podcast, you need to get this book. Like this book, Stephen and I, we haven't got, gotten any work done this week because <laughs> we've done nothing but talk about this book. <laughs> because it is like, for those of you out there who are in charge of mentoring orgs, I sometimes question whether or not I'm making an impact. And I'm giving my life to this, right? Well, this book will tell you what you need to do to make an impact. And that is encouraging to me because this book helps me know that there's been research done, that there's a professional out there who has said, I have done the homework on this and it works. And she has given that to me so that I know that I can be an effective mentor so that I know that what I'm giving my life to is actually making a difference. And that's so cool to me, Gene. So thank you so much for this book. I, I am in love with it and I can't wait to start. I'm just going to call you all the time. I'm, I'm just going to email you. I'm just going to bother you for the next six months. So I hope that you're ready for that. Oh, I'm, yes. it's just so gratifying. You know, writing a book is so lonely. Um, <laughs> so many lonely days. And it's like you're writing. Same thing with the Chronicle of Evidence-Based Mentoring. You guys know about that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've, I've read it for a while. And Peter Vanacore introduced me to you. Yeah. We'll go back to it because... Like I just put one out today. So you can subscribe for free. It's called the, go to evidencebasedmentoring.com. It's called the Chronicle of Evidence-Based Mentoring. And today I wrote a, a piece, it's called How the Pandemic is Going to Change Mentoring Forever. So if you like what you have in the book, there's more of it there. But really all of that is like an echo chamber. I just put it out there, or I guess not even an echo chamber. Anyway, I just put it out there and I don't hear much feedback. And so this is really gratifying to, to hear back from you that it was helpful. You know, those, those researchers and their clickbait, you know, blog posts, just, you know, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like. But actually, yeah, the Chronicle has slowly, you know, I don't advertise. I don't, we don't have any funders uh, other than Mentor National Mentoring Partnership, but we don't have any advertisers. We have over 10,000 subscribers on that. And so, you know, it has kind of quietly built up a, a readership. Yeah, it's awesome. Well, we, we will le- link to that in the show notes and give that to our mentors and mentoring organizations. To finish our time, Gene, would you have any recommendations for bridging the gap between practitioners and researchers that, that we haven't discussed? Um, just, just any encouragement you would give maybe to an, a mentoring organization that has been in that place where they're just making up their own stuff and aren't connected to resources like you. Yeah, well, one, one treasure trove is the National Mentoring Resource Center. And I don't know if you guys know about that. It's through the Mentor National Mentoring Partnership. And uh, with funding from OJJDP, they created this center where they'll provide free consultation to practitioners. And they write about really important topics that affect mentoring programs. And it's all free. And so I would point people there as well. Thank you so much for your time. We, we are just all about 
the work that you're doing and we're we're just here to say thank you like th thank you for making us better and so we are super grateful to connect with you well i'm grateful to connect with, with you as well i learn everything from people on the ground doing the practice and so it's really important for us to be having these conversations and so gene so thank you yeah thank you so much and could you could you point our listeners to your your website again just just so they know where to to learn what you guys are doing yeah all they have to do is uh type in the chronicle of evidence-based mentoring and on that website they can if they type in they can click and get a, a 30 percent discount on on the book just by typing in the word uh, holiday <laughs> and they can read almost 10 years worth of research article summaries and and profiles of, of practitioners and researchers and so forth that is dr gene rhodes Older and Wiser, the book she just wrote, New Ideas for Youth Mentoring in the 21st Century. Go pick up that book for Christmas. Thank you so much, Gene.